All right, and welcome to episode 44 of Etc. Etc. I'm your host, Aug Stone. Man, I'm trying to think what happened this week. There's a few awesome projects that are coming together that I'm not ready to announce just yet, but rest assured there are some very cool things coming. I just got word that Malaprop's Bookstore in Asheville, North Carolina are going to carry some copies of my Nick Cave's Bar memoir. That's pretty exciting. I did the fourth ever Young Southpaw performance in Asheville, and I stopped in at Malaprop's to look around before the gig. A cool shop. Nick Cave's Bar is my memoir about the time in 1999 when a complete stranger told me that Nick Cave owned a bar in Berlin. And without doing any further research whatsoever, my best friend and I flew from New Jersey to Germany to find it. It did not go as planned. I mean, could even be called a disaster. We got hold of some absinthe on our second night there, hallucinated for two and a half days afterward, and ended up in Prague. All while we were supposed to be looking for a bar that actually did not even exist in Berlin. Good times. You can get the book anywhere online, and there's a list of shops on my website, augstone.com, that are carrying it. There's also a spoken word performance of the highlights at my band camp. In Young Southpaw news, well, that'll hopefully be coming soon. And since we're talking about horror a bit on this episode today, here's a clip from an older Southpaw story entitled Maxwell's Silver Hammer Horror Films. Why weren't they called... The Water Beetles, you know? Like if they were going to spend so much time in there. Octopus's Garden, I am the walrus, I mean, come on! Heck, if they all live in a yellow submarine, I contest that that already makes them water beetles. Hmm. But I guess it's debatable, because, like, they live in the sub, not technically touching the water themselves but like legally you could argue i mean if this ever went to court that marine means water and like how did they get in there in the first place why were they fixing that hole could easily come from water damage though ooh Getting bugs in a submarine. That's terrifying, you know? And like, they weren't a goth band. I wonder if there are any goth Beatles cover bands who change the lyrics to primarily deal with, you know, like, being trapped in a yellow or any colored submarine underwater that's full of bugs. I mean, probably make a good horror movie, I would think. Maxwell's Silver Hammer Horror Films, you know? Maxwell's Demon, make it even scarier. That perpetual motion machine, I mean, talk about sexy. You got that demon sorting the molecules, you know? Look it up. And while you're at it, give Velvet Goldmine another spin. 
But, you know, Maxwell's demons, second law of thermodynamics, all that physics stuff, E equals MC squared, you know. MC hammer, too! Though, huh, please hammer, don't hurt him doesn't really go with the whole hammer horror ethos. Though, stop hammer time is the perfect ad campaign. What a complex relationship horror films have always had with early 90s rap. Ice tea, tea like the sign of the cross, you know. Warding off vampires. I still didn't see Leprechaun in the Hood coming. Deep Blue Sea. Water again. I mean, you got LL Cool J playing the chef. Why didn't they get Raekwon, you know? And the question that's always been on my mind. Why didn't Kid and Play make Haunted House Party? Halloween special, you know? If you want to hear more of that, and believe me, there's more. A whole lot more. That's episode number 52 of the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast, which you can find along with a bunch of other crazy stories over at youngsouthpaw.com and at any of the podcast places. There's a recent William Blake tribute video up there, too. But let's get to today's guests. I met Reggie Chamberlain King back in 2006 through a combination of mutual friends and live journal. And he was visiting London that summer when my band H-Bird were playing with Lucky Soul in Kilburn. I remember we had some time to chat before the gig and him introducing me to the work of the Polish writer Witold Gombrowicz. I think we've only been in the same room a couple of times, but I remember when I was running the quietest comics section... A few years later, I roped in Reggie to do some reviews. He's been involved in a bunch of cool stuff over the years. Wireless Mystery Theater, providing the lyrics for the Mystery Fax Machine Orchestra. 2014, he put out a book called Weird Belfast. And then last month, I got an email that he'd written a long introduction to a new printing of a collection of works by the Irish writer Connell Cernak. Or Kiernak, we get into the pronunciation on the show. I had no idea who Cernak was, but... I was intrigued, as I usually am when I hear what Reggie's up to. He sent me over the book, and I, I very much enjoyed it. I mean, since watching The Queen's Gambit, I've been very much into chess, which is the subject matter of the title story. And I found the essays in it very interesting and amusing. Reggie suggested asking Swan River Press publisher Brian Showers, who had put out the book, on the show as well. And it was my pleasure to meet him. We had quite a good conversation, so let's get to it. Ah, but before we do, I just want to point out that there are some dogs on this episode in the background making a bit of noise. Not too much of a distraction, but they are there. Reggie had put them in another room, and he had started the interview off by pretending that it was bedtime. He was reclining on his bed and trying to convince the dogs that it was, you know, that time of night, which it wasn't, which worked for a little bit, but then they started getting antsy. And now, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here today with writer Reggie Chamberlain-King and Swan River Press publisher Brian Showers. How are you guys doing today? Hey, Very well. No, no, nice to be speaking to you, Og. Yeah, you as well. It's been a long time. Well, not getting into that, that again. We did that off. Before we acquainted. That was probably me, wasn't it? Ooh, wasn't me. 
Uh, I'm going to close that. <laughs> I have all my stuff on mute. It's it's only it's only proper in a situation. Way to like plan this. ahead. Yeah. So we're going to be Ooh. talking about your new edition of Conal Kiernock. Is we how's that for pronunciation? That, I think that's <laughs> all right. That, <laughs> one of many legitimate variations. So Conal Kiernock's the fatal move. But before we get to it, Brian, you're American. I want to talk to you about what brought you to Dublin and setting up Swan River Press. I wish I had a really good answer for that, but I never do for as many times as I've been asked it. <laughs> but I moved here about 20 years ago. Um, and the thing is, like, if you stay here long enough, they can't actually make you leave. So here I am to stay. <laughs> um, but no, I don't actually have any sort of um, uh, spectacular story or anything. It's just a place that I that I migrated to at one point after finishing university in Wisconsin and Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, ended up staying. And I've, I've lived here ever since. In the same neighborhood, in fact, in South Dublin. South Dublin. Yeah. Uh-huh. And setting up the press was a little bit also sort of something that just kind of happened. Uh, it was never intentional. Um, I had started making these little palm-sized uh, chapbooks that I was giving to friends and family for, for holidays. So, you know, I'd write like a Halloween story or a Christmas story, and then I would have someone illustrate them, and then I would hand sew them together. And then people started asking me to uh, publish their stories in this way as well, which I had a hard time doing because it was so labor intensive, you know, with the needle and thread and like, you know, threading everything together. Nothing to do with writing or anything, just the... the yeah, story. yeah. I mean, like, this is after all the writing and, and the illustrating and all of that. Yeah, that's so, why publishers make the money. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, but I did realize that I that I that I did want to work with other people in an editorial capacity, so I ended up um, eventually after like seven years of doing chat books and booklets, um, doing a proper hardback book, and from there it's it's kind of turned into uh, more hardback hardback books and uh, a journal called the Green Book that I do that's focused on Irish literature. Um, the occasional festival, that sort of thing. What was the first book you put out? It was called The Old Knowledge, and it was by Rosalie Parker. She's um, she's a writer from she's from the south of England, but they but she and her partner, uh, who's also a writer, um, live in North Yorkshire now, um, and it's a collection of strange stories, I suppose, in the in the vein of Robert Aikman, that sort of thing. So were you into Irish literature back in Wisconsin? Or was it something you discovered? Not knowingly. Okay. <laughs> Not knowingly. And that's the thing about, about, I think, Irish literature as well, is you can, you can be... What I was into was ghosts. I love ghosts and the supernatural. That's what I was into. And I would read any sort of old ghost story. But then when I got here, I realized that some of these things that I've been reading were Irish. Um, so I wasn't necessarily into Irish stuff, but, you know, I'd been reading Lord Dunsany and, and uh, Joseph Sheridan Lefanu and Bram Stoker. And 
Charlotte Riddle and who else? Um, anything that would have been in like these early 60s Dover editions, you know, that you get at the, the public library. Um, but when I got here, I realized too that there were so many different aspects and different facets to um, supernatural literature by Irish writers. Um, you've got so many different approaches. I mean, you can you can you can almost hardly not class them as as Irish writers, save for the fact that you know they're they're from you know that they're Irish, but that's sometimes the only thing that really unifies them. Mm. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the writing of Lord Dunsany would be nothing like the writings of, of Bram Stoker or Dracula or, you know, a Gothic potboiler. Um, or, you know, even like the the, the writings of, of Conal Karnick, which we're, we're talking about today. I mean, there's all sorts of different things that you can find in people that were writing in different modes, uh, fantastic modes um, and approaches. So, yeah. Um, so I find that it's it's not really a niche kind of interest either. It's it's something that you can sit and explore for a very long time and keep finding all sorts of different curious uh, novels and stories and, and books, um, which is exactly what the Fatal Move is, I think. And Reggie, you've always had a predilection for the weird. I mean, you tend to seem to like that word, like <laughs> weird Belfast. Yeah, well, that, that, that's certainly. Um... There were my uh, a word that has, has cropped up in my my publishing history quite frequently, but uh, yeah, no, like Brian, um, I always had a, a predilection for um, ghost stories and um, monster movies and and the anomalous and um, anything that just sort of sat out of. Uh, out of naturalism so um and that that's how i met brian in the first place um my yeah. wife and i had um been running wireless mystery theater um in out of belfast which is a um, sort of live um radio play um theater company um and we were both uh, as horror fans, we're especially interested in um, presenting or adapting uh, ghost stories and horror stories and the like. And we really wanted um, to uh, present more uh, Irish stories. So um, through um, our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Bernice Murphy, that's uh, oh, Trinity. That's yeah, Trinity College Dublin. Um, <laughs> Who gave you my number anyway? Yeah, that's Bernice. <laughs> yeah, if there's one woman that you can trust. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so Bernice put us in touch with Brian. Um, and that, that's how we started discussing um, Irish um, supernatural and fantastical writing with yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and out of the conversations that we had, um, I think I took more seriously um, trying to find, um, I, especially stories that are, are books that came from uh, the north of Ireland, um, because it's while 
Irish literature itself is sort of marginal enough within the English language tradition, um, the writing of, of Northern Ireland or of Ulster um, is marginal again. Um, so, um, yeah. And you've come up with quite a bit too. Uh, yeah, well, um, and again, the, this is this is through you as part of um, the Green Book, which is the yeah. journal that um, Brian publishes through Swan River Press. Um, you you have started working towards uh, an encyclopedia of um, Irish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a guide we're calling it, because that uh, way no one can say there are facts missing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I, I think in that process, I I have probably contributed a lot towards the the writing. You've, you've contributed, I'd say, more entries than anyone else um, who's been contributing so far. And I will I would say that by the end of the project, you will have contributed the lion's share of the entries. But it's largely. I mean, you were sent to me by Bernice for a list of names, a list of names, um, <laughs> you, know, I, you know, obscure Irish writers. And yet um, it's largely down to the entries that you've been writing for me now for the Green Book that have sent me off scrambling, looking for things and investigating and exploring things that I had not. I, I hadn't read I knew of or and hadn't read because I just hadn't, but you know, what you'd written excited me about it. Yeah. Or stuff that I'd never heard of before at all. That was, that was sounded really interesting. Oh, I've got to have a look at this. Um, so you sent me then back down these paths to, to find things. And it's a real pleasure. Yeah. To, to, be, to have that feeling that you want to go out and find new stuff. Yeah, well, and and that that's sort of the the sort of spur for me, I think, as well, is knowing that there are other people who are, you know, even sort of casually interested in um, what sort of nineteenth century um, Ulster ghost stories there might be. Um, yeah, I know. I know that it isn't just um, you know me sort of uncovering some dusty book that'll go um, in my bookcase and stay there, that there's um, a, a conversation to be had. Yeah. Are you guys aware of the Trouser Press record guide? In, there's, I know what Trouser Press is. Yeah, there was the Trouser Press magazine, and then they put out, actually they put out six editions, but there was the fourth edition of the Trouser Press record guide, which pre-internet was like my bible of like you'd be reading it like you're talking about and you were just yeah, yeah. the only way to hear about certain things like certain bands and acts and like i treasure that thing so much i found yeah. it the other day again and it's just like yeah. stuff like that is so great to have that you know is a yeah that, that that's how i you know that's how i discovered all the music that's um yeah I, as a as a teenager i you know i didn't have um you know, any older siblings or anything like that. So I would, I would go into town. I would go into uh, Waterstones bookshop, and I would take down um, the um, the records 
uh, reference books that they had, and I would I would work my way through, and and I would just buy four star albums. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love and, stuff like that too. That's basically what the guide is that we're working on. Yeah. That sort of reference book where people can can read it and learn something and get really excited and, and go off and try and find it. And, and let, let you know that there are, that there are extant connections between things. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Scrabbling yeah. <laughs> around, there there is a, a constellation of uh material there. Yeah. And you're you're following it, um, you know, for you know uh, an informed reason, or you know, there there there's a, it's not just guesswork and instinct. I always think of it as, and I'm I'm the same way with music. I think of it as nodes, right? And then like, you know, you can go off in any directions. Like so and so is in a band. They started their own band, and then all of a sudden you're listening to like Public Image Limited or something, right? Yeah, <laughs> and you just go on from there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have, you know, ever listened to Anita Lane and um, yeah, Young there you go. Died if it were not for you know, her associations with Nick Cave. So it's it spirals yep. out like that. Yep. I'm just gonna check. Uh, you you can hear that these dogs have woken up and are yes. Are red, right? <laughs> Listeners, we have I thought that was you. I thought you were having breathing problems. There's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> no, despite my best efforts to um, keep them sedate, they something in this conversation has excited them. Public image limited, probably. <laughs> probably, probably. I'll pause it for a sec. Should should we put a disclaimer? I paused it. So, well, yeah, I'll, I'll put a disclaimer at the beginning, or if you want to. Yeah, I was, I was saying it was getting a bit obscene sounding there. So, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, <laughs> the excitement I, I, of the I ghost stories. To, to everybody for um, for my dogs who took it upon themselves to go a bit uh, sons and lovers uh, <laughs> beside me there. <laughs> Trying to get in on the interview despite not having really written anything themselves. <laughs> they have nothing useful to contribute. <laughs> so I want to ask, how did you discover Colonel Kiernock? I have been trying desperately to remember <laughs> how, how it happened. I have a memory of being in my mother's house and um scarring through digitized newspapers um for i think this was when i was working on the weird belfast book that i did so i, I was working through various online um digitized newspapers from uh the 20s um and i saw an advertisement for a book called the fatal move and there is no doubting from the author's name, <laughs> uh, Colonel Cernick, or Cernick, um, that that he was definitely an Irishman. Because there, there are plenty of you know, uh, American writers that you'll come across that have very, uh, that have Irish names. 
and you know, no disrespect to it, but it's always slightly disappointing when you find an author with an Irish name to find out that they're uh, American or Canadian or English or something like that. <laughs> um, just, just, just because there, there is a thrill in finding um, uh, an Irish writer. There's a, um, and then that, for me, that steps up again if they're from the north of Ireland or if they're from Belfast. There, 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 there's something just... Um, That's the sweet spot. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is, it's thrilling um, to know that... Um, you know, there was someone walking down the same streets as you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I saw, I saw the name and thought, well, that's that has to be worth investigating. Um, and after after a long search, I think I found um, a digitized copy of the Fatal Move. Um, in some university archive somewhere. So I was, again, delighted that the majority of the stories were set in Dublin. So that meant, yes, this is definitely um, an Irish writer uh, who's setting stories in Ireland. Which is quite rare too sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, there's no guarantee. Yeah. Uh, Oh, really? I mean, just because there's an Irish writer doesn't necessarily they're, they're writing, mean they're writing about Irish things or Irish places. Yeah. Um, the, there's, yeah, there's no guarantee. It's certainly, at, you know, from writing uh, from that period of time that you will see Irish life um, or Irish culture reflected in any yeah. of the writers at all. Um, you know, occasionally in somebody like Charlotte Riddle, yeah, you have some specifically Irish stories, yeah. but even those feel um, shaped especially for um, a largely English audience, which of course was intentional. Yeah, but yeah. but there the, 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 there's the slight, um, the faint sense of the the stage Irish, yeah, the page Irish, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah that sort of writing um so to see stories that were set in dublin um uh was quite exciting um and f- from that period from what well, sort of published 1924 um sort of 23 24 which means just after uh the war of independence heavy, heavy yeah all the happy stuff yeah uh, was was quite exciting um, and then, to make it even sweeter, um, once I started um, looking in uh, into him, into Cyrnik, whose real name was F.W. O'Connell, um, to find that he was actually living in Belfast when uh, he wrote those stories. Um, that, that, that's just everything that I want. Um, yeah. But you know, if, if if I'm going to uncover something, I want to uncover weird stories written um, in uh, you know in University Street, uh, right beside the menagerie, which will mean nothing to either of you. <laughs> but to me, that's 
that's significant. I, you know, I saw the boredoms uh, in the menagerie. So, so to think that that's pretty much the same patch of earth. Um, wow. Right, something. How was that show? I never saw the boredoms. I, I, I tell a lie now, I think, <laughs> I think about it. It wasn't boredoms at all. It was, it was Aston Mother Temple. Ah. Um, but it, it, was, it was a Japanese. Your point side. still stands. <laughs> <laughs> it, it stands all the same. And, and he was quite an interesting figure. And in, how many languages did he speak? Um, I, I don't think I don't think we can say for sure. Every uh, newspaper profile of him um, sort of documents a, a huge, a huge range of languages and seemingly disparate, uh, unconnected yeah. languages. So, I mean. But he spoke Russian and Welsh and Chinese and uh, various um, subcontinental Indian dialects. Um, That's got to be a brain type, isn't it? Like, yeah, you have that sort of brain that can that can make those connections to the way a language works and the patterns and the sort of mathematical. Yeah, I think staggering. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and Anthony Burgess was and, uh, quite the linguist, wasn't he? He was. And um, what's the what's the last story? Um, Ivan Smithovich. Uh, that reminded yeah. me a bit Ivan of Anthony Smith. Burgess. That I really liked that story. That was really funny. In the that fact one really stands out too, doesn't it? Of yeah. All of them. Yeah. I love the. Uh, not only the Russianization of the English names, John Smith becoming Ivan Smithovich, but also that it just, they repeat over and over again what a bad Gaelic speaker this last English speaking person is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it, it, it's the thrill of the sort of um, a, a form of, of Irish exceptionalism or, you know, the, the thrill, our, Irish exceptionalism. I, I think um, is is distinct from you know British or American exceptionalism in that the only the only group that the Irish want to be accepted from is is the English. So any um, any opportunity to um, <laughs> denigrate the, the English or at least um, Sort of pull one over on the English uh, is to be relished, uh, and I, I think that's that's what we that's what we see in that particular story. Uh, and you know, for for listeners, it imagines um, an England of the future um, where the Bolsheviks um, have have taken over um, the the island of Great Britain. And uh, the English language um, has been uh, suppressed, um, and there are now um, only six English speakers in the city of London, <laughs> which I'm pre- I'm pretty sure <laughs> you could read in the Daily Express. And 
so our 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 protagonist is a, a Gaelgor, uh, an Irish speaker, um, who uh, is visited by this this desperate Cockney, this this one uh, one of only six English speakers and the youngest one at that, um, who who realizes he carries um, the he he carries uh, the legacy, uh, the last remnants of the English language. Um, and all the our narrator can do is is criticize him for how bad <laughs> his Irish is. Well, wait, which which is just it's it's I I think that's I think that's a really beautiful story, and um, it's even weirder than that though, too, doesn't it? Oh yes, yes, no, it's 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 yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it gets, and it's it gets, not a long story either. No, <laughs> no. But I, I have I've read that story um so at, at a number of public events so um uh, i do a bunch of um sort of anomalous Belfast history um uh, events from time to time and i've i i've read that uh usually with an improvised score um and people love it nice. yeah people just think that it is uh a, a very very funny story, and the, just the fact that it exists at all—that somebody yeah. thought to um, invert the positions um, between um, the Irish and English language—it's—it's um, it's not much more than fifteen hundred words. No, if I remember, <laughs> um, yeah. it is incredibly short, uh, and I think it's also interesting if not notable that it's the final story in the book i always like to think that these things are deliberate hmm. yeah yeah I, I i get given the the material in the book and yeah. it, is, it is it is it is a short book there are only six stories in it i've got um, a copy here in fact this is nice. the first edition oh it's it's in it's in mylar so hopefully it shows up is that the copy that the red eyes yeah Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the that's the first edition copy that I have. The reprint has was meant to be here uh, two weeks ago, but it had been delayed for various reasons. So it's it's due in next week. So unfortunately, some reason to do with the historical relationship between uh, Ireland <laughs> and the UK. I think. Yeah, it's being printed in the UK. Maybe one of them there read the story and they're like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> take your time with this one." <laughs> So there's an interesting story behind the artwork that you're using for the reprint. Do you want to share that? Oh yeah, um, and I'd written a I'd written a piece uh, about it online because um, I'm always I'm always better writing these things down because I just stumble over my words. But to to sort of briefly retell it, the the artist on this first edition um, wasn't credited. The artist, the cover artist, rather. So we were sort of trying to figure out who the cover artist might have been. And this particular copy that I have has an inscription, has two, two inscriptions in it. And the first one is from the publisher to the artist. It actually says to the artist. And then, and it's from December of, of 1923. So that's another small clue as to the context of this book is that it was published for a Christmas market. Ah. So a lot of books that, that say that they're published in 19, say, 24, 
will actually have come out a month earlier so as to capitalize on the Christmas market. So so clearly this one was was given, uh, was published or at least available in December. So it's actually dated 1923. And then the second inscription is from the artist uh, whose name here is, is given as Tom Grogan um, to someone. And he, it's not, it's, it just says from Tom Grogan uh, as a, uh, what, what word is that? That's the one that I always have the hardest time making as a, as a specimen. That's what it is as a specimen of his productions. Um, so he's, he's, claiming ownership as as himself being the artist which i thought was great this is this is a little piece of information that would have been completely lost um had it not been for this particular copy and the what you had mentioned there earlier about the eyes is that this this copy here um for all those people listening at home uh you can see that it's <laughs> But the eyes are, are sort of filled in with red. And it took me a ridiculously long amount of time to make the connection between the red ink that's used in the artist's inscription. It's the same red ink as, as is used in the pupils. And, and I didn't even copy. realize. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he might have done it to other copies, but they, they presumably don't exist or are, you know, squirreled away somewhere. But I mean, it, it was even for a long time. I had I had assumed that these red pupils were part of the design of the book. I didn't realize that someone had taken a pen and filled them in and embellished the eyes. Um, so I had to have these, like you know, <laughs> these few moments of, of epiphany. Uh, the slow-witted publisher. Um, but yeah, I thought that was great. So what we decided to do for the new edition is to keep that detail in the artwork and actually reproduce it then on the on the new edition um as a as a nod to tom grogan and in in the new edition of course we've now credited him as well nice. but we still don't know who he is <laughs> <laughs> but you know it, it, it's a it's a process of of gradual uh, brushing away and and refinement yeah. and that, that I think that that has been certainly the thrill for me, and I think for you as well. Sort of the gradual mm -hmm. process of yeah of working out who um, O'Connell was mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, uh, so it's an it, excavation. Yeah, tell, yeah, I mean, your intro is what the longest biographical piece about him. You, I, as, that was. Yeah, I mean, as as far as as far as we're aware. Um, and you'd think that if there was an extensive piece of writing on him, we would somewhere along the way. So, so I, I think it's fair to say that this is the uh, the most extensive piece of writing on uh, O'Connell and his career. So he was uh, he was born in Clifton in County Galway, um, which is a Gaeltacht area of Ireland, which means that it's an Irish language um, area, um, as um, obviously the, the Irish language was um, sort of in some ways suppressed and in, in other ways just sort of fell out of 
um, prominence. Uh, you know, well, as, was it ever like officially banned? Like, wasn't it illegal to speak Welsh in Wales for quite a long time? Um, I, I'm I'm not an Irish historian, so I'm not going to make okay. <laughs> uh, huge declarations on that. But and I'm from Wisconsin, so I'm just going to leave it. To was it banned in Wisconsin? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, you know, within um, the the penal laws, it was um, it, it was um, made obsolete, um, and it would be disadvantageous um, to speak Irish solely. Um, and I, I think, I mean, I don't, I I don't know the details um thoroughly but i think the comparison to to welsh um is uh is interesting i think if you if you think of flan o'brien's um the permouth uh and bilbach um which is his satire of um sort of irish rural living or Irish rural living misery memoirs. Um, it's interesting in that that the, you, you have um, this character. Um, well, all of the all of the Irish characters, because the Irish names are completely unpronounceable. All of the men um, are simply in in legal proceedings are called uh, James O'Donnell. Um, which is essentially uh, John Doe, oh, yeah. um, and they are um, because they don't speak English. The um, the laws uh, that suddenly apply to them um, are completely unintelligible to them. So they they have to live by laws. That they don't understand, and then go in front of magistrates um, who they who they can't understand, um, and have sentences passed on them for reasons that they do not understand. And it's exactly the same plot as the trial, except that you know it happened, and it, and it probably happened in um, you know lots of colonized areas of. Uh, under British rule, um, so that's a tangent. <laughs> um, but yeah, this sort of this sort of this sort of surreal relationship with administration. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that and and I think I think you see it a lot. Um, a lot now in the sort of resurgence of the Irish language that recognizes that that there is definitely a psychic scar left in Ireland from um, being disassociated from the language that there that there is um, that there was a way of living on the island of of Ireland, of engaging with that environment, um, that um, 
that existed through the language um, that allowed one to coexist with the environment, um, or at least the language um, foregrounded the the particular environment of Ireland, and that the Irish people being deprived of that connection find themselves sort of disconnected from the place in which they live. Mm. So so if there is a fantastical quality to um, Irish writing, or there is a sort of a disparate vein of fantastical writing in Irish literature, that might be partly to do with um, the the sense of of disconnect from um, their environment and their governance, um, and and all of those things that that make the place feel slightly surreal, hmm. and, and you you can see how that's maybe mirrored in in magic realism as it comes out of uh, South America, um, or the the sort of writing that you get in. Uh, Eastern Bloc countries in the middle of the 20th century. Mm. I really liked you pointing out in the intro um, how he thought that the language was a very unifying factor. Mm-hmm. And that well, that that's that's really important because um, Irish has been heavily politicized mm. um, and and remains so to this day. Um, I mean, I don't know that it is so politicized in the Republic um, now. Brian might have a. I feel out. extremely, I feel extremely self-conscious commenting on the Irish language because I do feel it's been politicized. I, it's something I personally don't like wading into, despite you know my own opinions and impressions as an outsider, which I can only ever be. Um. <laughs> well, you, you you can be an astute observer, I'm sure. Um, but yeah. <laughs> well, in the to speak on it from from the north. Anyway, um, you know it remains um, highly politicized. It's um, one of the shibliths that denote the. Uh, the two communities um, that supposedly make up the uh, the conflict yeah. in Northern Ireland. Um, the you know the, the current um, or recent um, um, collapse of um, the the Irish executive. Um, is related. Uh, one of the contributing factors is the refusal of the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, um, who hold the um, the majority of votes from the unionist community. Their failure to enact um, an Irish Language Act, which would be similar to the Language Protection Acts um, that they have in Wales, say. Um, 
it was agreed um, during the St Andrews time, one of the uh, froze. <laughs> yeah, it's freezing for you there too. Resisted that throughout, um, which led to the collapse of the the Northern Irish Assembly. Um, now there, there are other factors as well, but it just goes to show how um, how it continues to be um, uh, a bone of contention um, uh, amongst the different political factions in the North, and that, that that's why I find Cernak um, so interesting, uh, because he was uh, he was an Anglican priest, so he he was a he was a Protestant minister, so by the by the expectations of that time in Ireland, he would have been expected to have uh, unionist sympathies, um, which he, which he he didn't. Um, he would also have been expected to um, reject the Irish language. Um, which oh here's a dog again hello <laughs> <laughs> okay do you want to sit down do you want to sit down um but he he purposefully um spoke of the irish language as um a a unifying uh cultural um historical legacy that all the people on the island of Ireland share. Um, so he he refused to let it be used as a as a political um, shibboleth that that um, rather than um, you know, ra rather than being a supporter, of um, the Irish language, a champion of it, or um, a, a denigrator of it, he he, he just it, it was a thing that uh, that existed and was actually a way for everybody on the island of Ireland, regardless of political uh, persuasion or of uh, religious uh, background to experience to experience Irishness to be um, he, he spoke of it as being like a like a sort of uh, telephone that you spoke you spoke you spoke Irish in um, sorry I'm, I'm gonna put him downstairs again. <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> he he can he, he can wait until we're done. Okay. Um, yeah. He all Cyrnek, I'll try a different pronunciation. Let's just go <laughs> along with you. Um, claim that uh, Irish is the master key to all linguistics. Yes, he did. Um, I I mean, like with most of his, because he was an ex he was a prolific essayist. Um, and in fact, most of his most of his writing is either 
um, these sort of short um, squib essays um, or Irish grammar writing. Um, this work of fiction is sort of an anomaly in his output. But um, all of his essays are, I, I, I would say, are, are tongue-in-cheek to a greater or lesser extent. So, so if I could just interrupt for, for a second, um, I would be willing to put money that those essays were written as radio broadcasts. Ah. And I think the reason I say that is because now Cernic or Karnik, whichever pronunciation one might want to go with, was, an, was a pioneering broadcaster in radio. And given the length of all of these essays, they are all very short essays. Mm. Um, I know because I typed a lot of them. <laughs> <out>. <laughs> um, and they are very short. I mean, some of them are around, you know, like 1,500 words, the same length as Ivan Smithovich, which I would not be surprised at all if he read on the radio too. But given that they're all kind of of the same length, but also of themes and topics that are kind of miscellany, but also interesting. You know, they, they, he does have his kind of themes, but he does, he does have a grab bag of, of things that he addresses. There is something of the, the magazine program. About, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, yeah. The diversity of, of subjects. That, and it's that not a disparaging thing to say either. It's, it's I just think yeah. that's the context of, of when I was reading them. That's that's what yeah. felt right to me. Yeah, and you know, you could make exactly the same um, accusation against uh, the the collections of Chesterton Chesterton essays or mm -hmm. uh, Belloc or anybody like that, and those would have been essays coming from um, you know weekly magazines. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I. He didn't join the radio. He joined um, Radio Aaron um, in about 1925, mm -hmm. uh, 26. And his first collection of essays was in 1915. Well, there's so, that theory. Uh... So, so, I, so I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're right, certainly, that it yeah. may. And I could see how, if the essays did predate. Yeah. Um, his work in yeah, radio, yeah. He, would have re he would have reused the material because they're, they're well yeah. suited yeah. To, the, to the medium. Um, and he has a very, um, he has a very um, sort of fun tone. Nothing is, nothing is too serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the essay even, about even uh, the Irish discovering America didn't seem serious <laughs> at all. <laughs> you, you, you say that, but when I was growing up, it was it was taken for granted that uh, America had been discovered not by Cahullan, as um, uh, Cernuk uh, writes about, but by St. Brandon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, 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 that is accepted that St. Brandon, the navigator, um, who's... Um, famous uh Imara story um takes him out to the blessed isle 
Um, he, he, he arrived in uh, North America before Leif Erikson um, and, and he came back. And that, that was that. It was just, you know, there, there, there was no, uh, <laughs> there was no sense that that was, um, you know, a, a fairy tale. That, that was just um, <laughs> maritime history. Were there any rumors? He also camped for a night on the back of a whale, too, didn't he? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you can't go from uh, you know, the West Coast <laughs> uh, to the East Coast of the States in one go. You're, you're going to have to take yeah. a nice Yeah, yeah. Are you familiar with the, uh, the myth of the Welsh-speaking Indians? No. That Prince Madog uh, of Wales went, I think, 1170 went to america and um it was there was a myth that there somewhere in i think the southwest there was a tribe of welsh-speaking indians thomas pinch yeah. mentions it in his uh i think mason and dixon um and then uh griff reese in his american interior uh was talking about his ancestor who helped map out the west uh bring this up again it's a fascinating thing is there, is there anything like that with uh besides just going to, to america or did he settle any tribes or anything uh well, you see, uh, St. Brendan went out there with what, 16 monks. Ah. So you know, they, 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 they weren't going to settle and populate. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's certainly sort of interesting um, sort of geographical uh, anomalies like, um, you know, the island of Montserrat um, were in the, in the Caribbean. I think um, where where the entire population has Irish accents. Ah. I think there's isn't there a, is a location in in Eastern Canada? You know, some island where Newfoundland like and yeah, the accent is again are very Irish oh. sounding. Yeah. yeah. Well, the the, the, um, the the inhabitants of uh, Montserrat. Um, I would probably like, like a lot of people in the Caribbean would be from uh, descended from um, enslaved peoples. So um, they're, they're uh, uh, a largely black population there with, um, with Irish accents, which um, feels um, distinct from uh, Newfoundland, which would have been, Saddled by Irish people, right, right. Of course, Caribbean Irish. That would then make me think of of MP Shield. Yes, uh, I mean, his I, father I, was, I think, a governor there or something. Yeah, that manner. That's yeah, that's interesting. Not enough of this <laughs> We're veering. <laughs> I know you've got to walk the dog soon, so I wanted to touch on briefly um, what else you guys have coming up. Uh, Brian, you have the Uncertainties book collection. Yeah, that's um, it's a it's a completely different direction from like something like the Fatal Move. So like I would publish things that are I don't exclusively publish Irish literature or you know even even older Irish literature. I do contemporary stuff as well, and I would publish contemporary 
writers from anywhere in the world, as long as it's something that I, that I liked and was kind of in keeping with my, my aesthetics, my literary aesthetics, which is, you know, weird and, and supernatural and strange. Um, so yeah, uh, being published alongside the fatal move is the fifth volume of uncertainties, which is an anthology series of contemporary writings in the vein of, well, any sort of approach to literature that would, that would fall under the, the remit of the outre, you know, weird, uncanny, um, cosmic ghost stories, um, anything like that. And the, the point of the, the anthology is, which is, again, it's now in its fifth volume, is to be a showcase for the range that this type of literature can 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 be and what it can show. Because um, in your intro, you pointed out that mo- lots of people have a very, very narrow definition of the word horror. Yeah, I mean, some people can, or they do have a, or they have a wider definition, but they don't realize they have a wider definition. They'll 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 agree that something is of you know within the realms of weird literature, but say, well, that's different. It's not quite well. I don't think it's necessarily different. I mean, you can, you can, I mean, the thing about, thing about ghost stories in the broadest sense of the term um, and supernatural literature is that throughout history um, or the history of literature, you would have had writers who would veer off into this, into this genre. So Charles Dickens would do it. Charlotte Riddle, who we mentioned earlier, um, who is now known primarily for her ghost stories, wasn't at the time a ghost story writer, as we would refer to her now. She was writing, um, she's writing society novels, I guess you would call them, you know, just regular um, novels of the day. Uh, And that was her primary um, output. It's just that every Christmas time she would write a few ghost stories. And if you do this enough over the years, then you've got a fairly substantial um, body of work in the supernatural. And I think a lot of a lot of writers would sort of veer into this anyways. Um, it probably wasn't even until I'm, I'm really generalizing here, but I'd say it probably wasn't even until the early 20th century that people really started specializing in in genre writing. Hmm. I'd say for the most part, people would kind of, you know, write whatever they felt like writing, but it was sort of, I I would say at the beginning of the 20th century, that this idea of genre, not just horror, but I think science fiction and all of these sorts of things uh, would start to crystallize a bit more and then people would start, um, specializing and the way that I think influence works is if you've got a group of writers who are, who decide that they're going to, sorry, if we go back before that, maybe let's look at another writer like Lefanu, who was another, he's another Irish writer who would write historical novels, mystery novels, crime types of novels, but also supernatural stories and it was the supernatural stories that he really became known for. And he then influenced M.R. James, whose fiction 
was nearly exclusively supernatural writing. Um, but he was definitely clearly influenced, admittedly so, by Lefanu. He was his his sort of inspiration. But I think he he focused on Lefanu's supernatural literature. And then people coming after M.R. James or who were more or less contemporary who would then say, right, James is writing these great ghost stories. I'm going to write some ghost stories too. So a lot of his contemporary colleagues would start churning out their own volumes of ghost stories, um, you know, where the entire book is a collection of ghost stories, as opposed to um, if you were to look at, say, a collection by B.M. Croker, who is another Irish um, writer who, again, would write across the board. If you would pick up one of her collections from the 1880s or 1890s, you would have a whole array of different types of stories. One or two of them might be ghost stories thrown in. Mm. But I think as we sort of get into the 20th century, people start um, specializing, I suppose. Um, I don't even remember what your original question was. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you've got Alan Moore in the new collection. Yeah, yeah. Exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. Um, yeah. Um, yep, Ramsey Campbell, we've got in. We've got a few Irish writers um, because I always try to, where I can, um, approach Irish writers. Um, I don't know, Reggie, have you found, maybe it's just me, but I don't think the tradition of supernatural and weird writing has really taken hold here in Ireland in the same way that it has in America and the UK. Yeah, I have, I have struggled. And why? <laughs> that, that, that's an interesting question. Um, I suppose to preempt what I think Og will ask me later, which is what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, next, I'm currently uh, editing an anthology for Blackstaff Press <laughs> um, called Black Dreams, which is a collection. Start that over again. You froze. Yeah. You're currently editing. Uh, so I'm currently <laughs> editing um, uh, an anthology for Blackstaff Press um, here in Belfast um, called The Black Dreams, which is a, a collection of new strange stories from um from writers in in northern ireland and it's yes it, the while there are um significant writers from the north who have written in a fantastical mode um through time c.s lewis being the obvious one mm -hmm. and forrest reed and uh, stephen gilbert and of course charlotte riddle um was from just keeps coming up yeah, yeah, important figure. Um, but but the, you know, despite um, despite these occasional figures, um, yeah, there there's no obvious tradition um, of it of that sort of writing or of people seeing themselves being part of that tradition. So yeah. trying to uh, put together this contemporary 
collection. Um, there, there was certainly no, <laughs> there was no point or use in me trying to find um, ghost story writers from Northern Ireland and asking them specifically. So um, I have approached, you know, a wide range of uh, Northern Irish writers um, and, pre and trying to find the terms in which to discuss the type of story that I'm, that I'm looking for for this collection, which is the type of writing that uh, we're interested in, Brian, is, is really quite difficult. Um, yeah. In recent, in recent time, um, something like Milkman, by Anne Burns, which is by no means, um, you know, a, a piece of fantastical fiction, but is certainly a surreal, mm -hmm. uh, surreal work. Um, and say the um, the writings of Jan Carson, um, yeah. which, which is generally frequently discussed as magic realism. Yeah, that that has sort of come up um as a way uh i think of handling sort of post troubles trauma and i i think it is discussed quite specifically in terms of magic realism um as opposed to fantasy or horror writing mm -hmm. be because magic realism legitimizes it in a yeah, way, yeah, yeah. in a way that uh, <laughs> other terms don't. So I, I'm using this collection to try and um, explore the sort of post-conflict um, mm -hmm. trauma while owning it as um, as strange stories or weird fiction or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> the subtitle. It's, it's, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean because it's a really difficult one. And I found that when I was approaching Irish writers, um, that I had to sort of, oh, how to put this? Um, you want to give them a chance to see if they can write within the genre of what you're kind of looking for. And we're not talking about necessarily yeah. very constrained definitions but you know within the realm of what you're looking for and for example in uncertainties five i've got a story by ramsey campbell now ramsey campbell has been writing horror and supernatural and ghost stories since the 1960s and that's what he specializes in and he's he's good at it and he's known for it so when you go to ramsey campbell and you ask for a contribution he knows what you're talking about um, he knows the tradition and he knows the context yeah. and you kind of know then what you're going to get. But if you go to yeah. an Irish, I found that, what the, the, that the Irish writers I was approaching, not all of them, but for the most part, um, you would go to someone and they would kind of have an idea but not necessarily be familiar with the fullness of contemporary weird literature, I guess. Yeah. 
Most yeah. of them would yeah. understand the idea of what a ghost story is, but their idea of a ghost story might well connect to the, you know, would be caught in Victorian times. Yes. And yeah. that's exactly what I wouldn't necessarily want. And I would assume you're probably the same is we don't want people to write pastiches of Victorian ghost stories. We're looking yeah. for contemporary literature in yeah. this mode. Yeah. Um, and I just, I found that it was much harder to find people in Ireland writing in this mode innately who kind of have, um, who are native to the mode. Um, I found it was much easier finding, finding people like that in the UK and in America where maybe not coincidentally, the small press I think is much more active um or the the small press serves weird literature much better in the uk and in in the united states and canada um than it does here in ireland um and i think for the most part swan river press again while other publishers would occasionally wade in with something or something adjacent um i think swan river press is the only irish publishing house that specializes in this type of literature. Yeah. Um, but also within the context of this type of literature. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know, I don't necessarily know why that is, why we don't have more writers here um, that are like that. I mean, there are a handful, but it's it just doesn't feel as if we have as developed a scene Maybe it has to do with the size of the country. Maybe it has to do with the dominance of other types of literatures. I I, th I think, yeah, the, the size of the country uh, is definitely a contributing factor. Yeah. So the, the, like the limited um, market for short stories, which mm -hmm. is obviously um, an important mode in um this sort of writing is very limited and there it'd be hard to imagine that um that like a, a, a genre specific magazine could be sustained exactly yeah 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 um i mean what what i find approaching writers for uh the black dreams is that um, the term ghost story well, was mm -hmm. definitely very limiting to, yeah, yeah. Um, to, to writers who were not immersed in it. And, you know, and they would come back to me and say, well, I, I, I just, I can't think of a ghost story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas if I approached them with, um, you know, a list of authors, that I felt represented um, right. the sort of thing that I was after, they'd get very excited. What sort of authors would be on this list? Um, uh, Shirley Jackson. Um, I know it, it, was, it was, you know, it was quite a, a diverse range that, that I included. Yeah. I think uh, Aikman, uh, yeah. Shirley Jackson, uh, Bruno Schultz and Gustav right. Mehring. Right. Yeah. Uh, Speaking that, of that, the Eastern Bloc, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, and and they really got that and locked into that 
and yeah that's interesting excellent chat you know what sorry i'm gonna have to wind this up i gotta get going in a couple minutes we'll have to to (laughs) that's all right we will you you head off and we'll keep on uh (laughs) go do what you need to do we'll let us van halen next time (laughs) (laughs) i was just gonna say that what ireland does have a lot of is, is fantasy writing yeah, and there's yeah. probably something to be said about that as well. So, um, well, <laughs> it, yeah, that, that's we'll do it again. The, the yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. Thank you very much for coming on the show. We're out of time. <laughs> no, thank you for having us. Absolutely. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly learned some interesting things. There's a really good essay by Kiernak in the Fatal Move about the move to a universal language. One that's given me much cause to think since I read it about the sound of language and its personal and historical roots versus, you know, an ease of communication. You can pick up The Fatal Move, Uncertainties, Volume 5, and other Swan River releases at swanriverpress.ie. And if you like this episode and want to share or subscribe, that would be much appreciated. Reviews are always awesome, too. And check out the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast as well and all the stuff up at youngsouthpaw.com and augstone.com. Until next time, thanks for listening, y'all.